the Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Episode 49. Out of the Unknown. Hello everyone and a very warm welcome to the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And tonight we're going to be looking at a 1960 science fiction series called Out of the Unknown. Simon, this is one of your choices. Do you want to give us a bit of a premise? Um, yes, this is a, um, a BBC science fiction anthology series, predominantly in its early years at least, adapting classic science fiction short stories. It started in 1965, um, following on from the success of a series that spun off from the armchair theatre strand called Out of This World. And the producer of that, Irene Shubik, worked with, oh fuck, what's Newman's first name? Sydney. Sydney Newman. Okay, he worked, she worked with Sydney Newman on armchair theatre and was given Out of the Unknown strand as her first solo runner to, uh, as, as a producer. She'd been a science fiction fan all her life. She'd wanted to do science fiction adaptations for years. Uh, I'd managed to get a couple into armchair theatre and then had this spin-off out of this world. And then that went on to the BBC Out of the Unknown. It ran for three series in the 60s and one in the early 70s. She directly oversaw the first two series, which were both in black and white, and did all the commissioning for the third series, but didn't actually oversee it as a producer. There was then another producer who came in, Alan Bromley, who looked after the third series and then did the fourth series. And in the fourth series, they went for more psychological and horror-based things. Whereas for the first three years, it was much more straight down the line, classic Asimov, Cymac, um, science fiction. We're going to be looking at four different episodes tonight from the first and second series on the subject of isolation, which seems an appropriate topic at this time. We're, we're in the middle of uh, COVID lockdown. Um, that actually affects me an awful lot less than it affects most people because I'm still going into work. Uh, but I know an awful lot of people are feeling very stuck in their house and isolated while at the same time being more connected through social media. So actually, The Machine Stops would have been the perfect episode to do for this, but we've already done that one. Mm -hmm. Before we uh, do start watching, we need the tonic screwdriver. Today I'm going to pick one out called Ludlow Dry Gin, which is another one that um, has landed on my doorstep courtesy of you. The info bollocks for this, which I have in front of me, a classic dry gin with subtle notes of lemon, orange, cardamom and hand-picked gorse flowers, evoking the gentle scent of the Shropshire hillsides. A truly premium dry gin with exceptional length. I'm not, I'm well, not sure exceptional what length exceptional, is always good. Exceptional length, I believe, is a very good thing when you're on the receiving end of it. Oh, fuck. Um... Sorry, as soon as you said exceptional length, Alexa has woke up, has woken up and started making recommendations to me, which... Mm. <laughs> well, apparently, it's perfect as a classic martini, or served as a long gin and tonic with plenty of ice and a slice of lime. Well, um, I'm just having mine at this end with ice and a bit of tonic. Which is what I'm having, probably not as much ice as you have because you drown it. I do, I've got plenty of ice in mine, um, but only a dash of tonic. 
That's quite nice. It's it's another one of those gins that's quite sherbety. Mm. Oh, that, that's very, very nice. I'm not getting an awful lot of gorse off it because I do like my gorsey gins. I'm not getting gentle sense of the Shropshire hillsides either, but it's it's quite a nice gin. Um, well, the last time I was in the Shropshire hillside, it smelled like sheep shit. So. <laughs> no, thankfully that is not coming off my glass. It's a very nice gin. Um, I really like that. There is... Taste-wise, there's nothing special about it at all. It doesn't, it doesn't scream fur or pepper or anything. I mean, there's nothing fruity in that at all. Um, it's not as overpowering as some of the Scottish gins that I really like. Mm. But you know what? I really like that. It, it's subtle. Everything blends together absolutely beautifully. I think this would be swamped in a martini. Um, I think this works perfectly as a tonic gin. But I'm I'm really enjoying this. I'm tempted to give that a four. I'm definitely giving this a four. Mm. Hmm. More of that, please. It's one of those, you drink it, and it's lovely. And it's really difficult to put into words quite why it's lovely, because mm. it's just a, a perfectly bulk standard gin done very, very well. I keep going back to that sherbet, though. That's the, um, that's the overriding thing that I've got from it. And I don't know what's causing that taste. We've had a few gins that taste like that now. But yeah, I'd definitely come back for more. Right, so gin in hand, where do we head next? It's time to descend into the Black Archive. Now, we are doing this remotely, of course, so although I'm here, actually, Simon is here as a hologram, what would you like to pull out of the Black Archive this evening? (laughs) Am I now? (laughs) Hang on a minute, does that mean you've got cameras around here? I installed a projector in your microphone. More importantly, does that mean that Spaff has control over cameras around here? No, Spaff is still upstairs, he's on the settee with his bag of crisps, you know what he's like. Yeah. He can be a bit mischievous at times, can Spaff. He has. There was that time that he put Doctor Who in the wrong cans and then sent them off to Nigeria. Naughty Spaff. Yeah, I blame him more for the ones he sent to Sierra Leone. What would you like to rescue this evening? Why send the savages? What would I like to rescue this evening? Well, I think in keeping with the the theme of Out of the Unknown, why don't you go first? Okay, well, uh, mine is actually one that you exposed me to recently. It's a lovely little piece called Out of This World. Which, oh, lovely. Yeah, that was a series uh, in the early 60s hosted by Boris Karloff. There were science fiction adventures, a different one every week. It was an anthology series. And the only one that survives in its entirety is one called Little Lost Robot. Which we've by, done for the team at um, Brand the Archives. Archives. We have. Uh, It's an Isaac Asimov story, and it's all about basically a robot that gets lost and breaks its programming due to interference and causes all sorts of problems for uh, staff at a base who are redistributing other robots. Uh, I won't spoil it too too much because we are going to do that for Round the Archives, but as a piece, it's really beautifully done. It's from 1962. Boris Karloff, you would not recognise as the monster. It is 25 years after he did that. But it's just a lovely little piece. There are a couple of audio episodes that exist as well, and they're presented on the disc. And as with everything that's BFI, it is really lovingly presented. So I think that based on the one that exists, I think that that might be a really nice thing to have back. 
I think that's a really good choice. Now, I'm going to stay in keeping with the the theme of this as well, because in between Out of This World and Out of the Unknown, there was a standalone production of an Isaac Asimov plague called The Caves of Steel. Um, it's about uh, Elijah Bailey, who is a robot detective. A lot of Asimov's work in terms of the robot stuff fits into a shared history. So there's the there's the early stories with Susan Calvin, Little Lost Robot is one of those. And then about 300 years later, you get stories of a robot detective, Elijah Bailey, and Caves of Steel is one of those. It's about a murder that takes, pla- takes place off-world and actually fits in beautifully with the isolation theme that we're, we're talking about because it all of these people off-world, because they have so much space, never meet each other in person. And because they've been doing this for a long, long time, they have become pathologically agoraphobic. So they're, they're incapable of, of going out and meeting people face to face. And Elijah Bailey and his human partner, whose name I can't remember, go along to solve a murder on this, this distant colony. I read the novel years and years ago. I, I ploughed through tons of Asimov stuff when I was a teenager. It's a very, very clever novel, as is most of Asimov's stuff. It was supposed to be an excellent adaptation. I believe it starred Peter Cushing as one of the detectives. I don't think it was Elijah Bailey. I think it was his to human partner. But it's a, a missing piece of Asimov television, and there are almost none of the adaptations of the, of Asimov's classic robot short stories that were uh, done in the 1960s that have survived. I, I think the Little Lost Robot segment of Out of This World is the only one. But again, we'll, we'll talk more about that one uh, on the, uh, around the archives. Okay, so Spaff and myself are back in the viewing room. Simon, you're here as a remote hologram. We're going to look at three episodes of Out of the Unknown. We were going to do four, but unfortunately, time is against us. Yes, I have, I have that pesky work thing to do at the moment. Yes, and I am similarly afflicted, although with less of a, a life and death scenario that you're saving the country from. This is an episode from the second series called Lambda One. Again, because you're better at this sort of thing, do you want to give us a pricey? This is actually one of my favourite episodes of the, uh, Out of the Unknown. Uh, it's one of the first ones that I got to see. I, I still love watching it. Written by Colin Cap, adapted for the television by Bruce Stewart, and directed by George Spenton Foster. Uh, this was trans- transmitted on the 20th of October 1966. It's the story of a transportation method in the near reasonably near future, that will take objects out of phase from normal matter so it's able to pass through matter. So rather than having to take an arc around the the planet to get from A to B, you can go direct from A to B by going through the, the planet's crust. And they have different ways or types of phase that these ships will shift in and out of. And they, uh, the ship that is the, uh, the subject of the, um, the episode 
which is one called the Electron, is a, a passenger liner. It um, has a number of uh, passengers that are, that are traveling on it, one of whom is extremely nervous, one of whom is the wife of the London controller of the, um, the tower terminal. So passengers get on get on board the uh, the tower ship, start their journey through to to London from New York, and partway through develop problems. And there is a phase of uh, of travel they say is theoretical called the Omega phase that has been seen once or twice, but not really fully documented. And the ship suddenly lurches into the Omega phase. Now, on board the ship, there's a, there are a number of tensions going on. There's a very, very nervous passenger um, who has noted that the uh, the captain of the ship is drunk out of his box. And the, uh, the passenger to remonstrates with the, the captain about this, who lays into him, throws open the, the screens from the, the viewing windows to show this sort of nightmarish vista outside the, the ship and said, I have to look at the, this all day. Is it any surprise I drink or worse that effect? The, the very nervous passenger freaks about this um, and tries to slash his wrists. And that's the point at which they they slip into Omega phase. The London controller and a friend of his who's a psychologist decide that they're going to try and rescue the electron, um, especially when he realises that his wife is on board. And they have the original test ship that the um, the first tow journeys were, were made in um, called the Lambda 1. And the modern ships tend to have a very stable configuration. The Lambda 1, because it was much simpler and had less shielding, would slip in and out of different phases every few minutes. They think that they've got a better chance of getting across to, to rescue the Electron in the Lambda 1. So they set off in the Lambda 1 and aren't able to switch into Omega until the psychologist on board realises that there is a significant psychological interplay with the, the different modes of vibration. And he tries to harm himself as well. And at that point, they shift into Omega. They're able to get across to the uh, to the Electron where one of the, um, the crew members has realized they're in a hopeless situation and has started venting poison gas into the ship. The ship is rescued by the the wife of the controller who turns out to be pregnant. Controller and the psychologist turn up on the uh, on the electron and realize that the interaction with the different modes of vibration has a, a, a real psychological element to it and that you've got somebody who is desperate to end his life uh, that slips them into omega mode and the reunited young family, so husband, wife, and husband just finding out about the, the fact that his wife's pregnant, and that expectation of life pushes them back into a, a, a normal to delta mode, and they're able to, to go back into normal space. There is some absolutely beautiful filming here. Really quite nightmarish in places. Mm, yes. When, when you see what the um, modes look like, looking at the, the landscape that they're going through, and to my mind, the most effective sort of nightmare scapes put on to, to film at any point, certainly at any point in the 60s, melting rocks and um, reverse filming of people melting combining and into rocks and... Uh, yeah, melting faces. It, it very effectively done. Really quite horrible. It's an interesting story. It's not without its flaws. To my mind, the biggest one of which is that they've they they make a big thing about how when um, the engines die out, then this ship will drop back into normal space. Um, and if it does that without properly being phased out, then it will 
destroy half the continent that it's on because the collision with normal matter. That was inconveniently ignored in the resolution. Uh, that was one thing that I was going to flag up. I wonder whether I've missed something. Because, because they just left the Lambda 1 there in Omega mode and at some point its motors were going to run out and would drop back. So they'd have their happy resolution. Oh, look, we've rescued everybody. Oh, the Lambda 1's motors are about to, about to go. Kaboom. That's a fairly minor niggle and it might be that because there was nobody in the, the Lambda 1 to push it into Omega mode, it might drop back into something that they could deface remotely. The psychological element of the, the story is slightly unusual for the early years of um, Out of the Unknown, although there's also a very strong science fiction element to it. Uh, the, compared to, to things that we've watched like The Machine Stops and Level 7, the print isn't as good condition. It's not terrible, though. It's, it's, not, it's not terrible, but think about how pristine the other two, so Level 7 and The Machine Stops were. Yeah. It was... I'm I must admit, of the ones we've seen so far, because as a series, I'm really quite fond of this. I wasn't as gripped by this one. The certainly certain aspects of it, you had to really listen to the lines. It wasn't really one where you could sort of watch it half-heartedly. You had to listen to each line to fully understand what was going on from beginning to end. But actually, I think that's true of most out of the unknown episodes. They. 1960s telly, it might be slow, but they don't mollycoddle their their viewers. You have to actually concentrate on what's on the screen, um, and they're not going to spell it out word for word. They they don't do that in Level 7. They don't do that in any of the other ones that that they've watched. No, I think what's more, what I was more meaning was particularly in reference to the modes, the different modes that they go through. It's never fully scientifically explained what each of what the modes are. It's just one of those elements of the travel process. So you've you've but, sort of got to use your imagination, but they just keep bouncing between the alpha, delta, gamma, omega. So you're constantly bombarded with Greek letters. It's never fully explained. So you're sort of clinging onto this this concept. And because you don't really understand what they are, they're going through all these different things while they're actually in the ships. And you're not fully getting what the difference is between them because they all look absolutely nightmarish when they look out of the screens and windows. There is that. I have to be honest, I, I think if they were to go into a long, detailed explanation of what each individual mode was, it would make for quite dull television, wouldn't really add anything to it because the the majority of the, um, of the plot is psychological. Yes, I'll agree with that. It's about, is it Kelman, the passenger who tries to kill himself? IMDb? Apparently not. Okay. Uh, okay. It, it's about one one man's desperation that he, he's kind of pushed into by the um, frankly unprofessional dickery of the um, of the captain. It's Bud Tingle who does a fantastic performance, but the the character is an absolute arse. That was slightly unbelievable that the crew would just blithely allow this clearly wrecked captain without any sort of either intervention or reporting to the powers of be uh, powers above. Because it's clearly something that's clearly his character trait. He is an alcoholic. Mm. But you know, if you if you've got a, a situation where it's pretty much push a button and all controlled from back at base, then your your captain becomes the almost social director and jolly along. And for that, you might get somebody who is more more entertaining and uh, more relaxing if they've had a drink. Uh, and it might just be that this was a particularly bad day for him, boosted by this very difficult passenger. So if the captain was purely a figurehead, then yeah, he might not, might not care too much. And by the time it, it's obviously a problem, then the, the stewardess, the second in command, are trying to do things about it. Mm. 
a quick chat about the um, the cast who were in Lambda One, and the only Who alumnus that I could find was Jeffrey Frederick, who played Alex, was Exorce in The Savages. One of your favourites. Yeah. Jessica Denning played Nurse Cowley in The Big Pool, and that's not one that that's a, a missing science fiction serial that we've talked about in a previous Black Archive. And then there are a number of alumni uh, or regulars from Emergency Ward 10, which I know is something we've talked about coming on to in a, a later episode. Jeffrey Frederick was Dr. Robert Hamilton. Mary Webster was Jill Reed. And Bud Tingwell was Dr. Alan Dawson. And he was also Captain Fawn and Captain Brown in uh, Captain Scarlet and the Mistrons. Well, that I didn't know. The magic of IMDb. Uh, he he was also the <laughs> in, uh, the police inspector in the Margaret Rutherford Miss Marple stories. Um, but yeah, it was very reminiscent to me of the Doctor Who story Seeds of Death. Huh? It is right. Seeds of the team ad. Yes. The whole concept of it, even the sets, and down to the the way it's announced and. Anyway, it's my Doctor Who fan oh, the, coming out. Yeah, the, the physical bit at the terminal, I, I can see where you're coming from mm. with that. Um, oh, yeah, the nightmarish we, travel in between. We never see yeah, that with T-Man. The, the seeds of death, it was you flick a switch, you disappear in one place, you reappear mm. in, in another place. There, It's teleportation, though. There was no real examination of the travel process no, itself, whereas this is all about the travel process mm. itself. And also, T-Man was instantaneous. It was you leave one place you are transmitted to another, whereas with the the Tau travel, it's going to phase at one terminal, you physically travel, but in a different phase through to the next terminal, and then you... So, so there's no instantaneous transport with this. But yeah, I agree that um, the TMAC control room kind of looks like the, uh, the Tau control room. Some of the costuming looks quite similar between yeah. the two in that they've got this this sort of fairly bland uniform thing, um, although the Lander one doesn't have the stripes that look like wearing their Y-fronts over the top of their, tr- <laughs> their trousers thing that uh, Seeds of Death have. Yeah, it was okay. Um, just of the ones we've watched so far, and of the three that we've watched for this session, Lambda One is my least favourite. I, I wasn't particularly gripped with it. And, and possibly for me, it's the sort of historical, this is one of the first thing, first episodes that I saw. So I've, I've got a real soft spot for time in advance as well, mm. although that's not actually a brilliant episode either. But because that and uh, The Machine Stops were the two first episodes I saw. I have a real soft spot for time in advance. I do for The Machine Stops as well, but on further viewing, The Machine Stops is an absolutely brilliant piece of television, time in advance less so, but we're not talking about time in advance. I was going to say, should we move on to 13 Centaurus? Yes, okay. This one, more to do with the theme of isolation. I I think Lambda One has quite a lot to do with isolation as well, and certainly psychological isolation, but... It was kind of a variation on a base under siege story, wasn't it? Because they yes, were trapped inside the inside this machine. It was elements of desperation within the machine that were causing the problems. So I mean that that was really the reason that I suggested that for one of our isolation episodes. You're right. The theme of isolation is much more prevalent in Thirteen to Centaurus and Thirteen to Centaurus, which was transmitted on the thirteenth of December, nineteen sixty-five, from a short story by J.G. Ballard, uh, adapted by Stanley Miller and direct by Peter Potter. 13 to Centaurus starts off as um, 13 people on a, um, a spaceship traveling to Alpha Centaurus and they've been traveling for a couple of generations 
and they recognize that they're not going to arrive at Alpha Centaurus for another couple of generations. And there are three families that are on there and a supervising psychologist who's a little bit distant. Uh, he has his own office at a di- on a different level to the passengers and crew and really is a bit of an odd man out mentally conditioning them with their with their consent to uh, to cope with the the fact that they are going to spend their entire lives in this spaceship and one of the younger members of the crew starts to question where they are he's got a very good knowledge of physics so he's able to work out that they're not in space they're actually on the surface of a planet and it turns out that this is an experiment that has been running for the last 30 odd years and they, the people inside the ship have been raised to think that they're on their way to Centaurus as a psychological experiment uh, so that when there is actually a generation ship able to go, then people will know how these how people are likely to respond to that kind of that kind of very locked in, isolated environment. The psychologist is um, is the only member of the crew that knows what's going on. In the corner of his office, there there's a, a little trapdoor thing that he can go through to to talk to the um, the scientists and military people outside of the spaceship. And he finds out not long into the episode that the project is going to be wound down and that they need to um, condition these people for the fact that they're going to end up, they're going to land on Earth within a couple of years or so. And the, this psychologist guy is basically saying these people have lived their entire lives believing that they were never going to set foot on anything else. And then you're suddenly going to take them out and tell them that, that was all a lie. It is going to completely wreck their psyches. So he argues for a significant amount of time for adjustment. He goes back into the ship. The young lad who has pretty much worked out what's going on. And there's one bit where you see that he's he's looking through a, a, a bit of the wall. And you're not sure whether he's worked out whether there's um, stars outside. In the short story that it's based on, it's made much more clear that he has worked out exactly what's going on. Um, But there's a bit of a question mark over that in this adaptation. And he starts to manipulate the psychologist up to the point where the psychologist agrees that he will undergo a period of conditioning in the same way as the the other crew members are. And throughout the rest of the, the episode... He starts refusing to come out and reporting to his his superiors. Um, He gets more involved in his conditioning. And at the end of the episode, he has accepted life as a member of the crew. And the young lad who was doing his conditioning has basically taken on the role of, of the psychologist. So it's quite an odd story. J.G. Ballard's stuff is is often quite odd. And he either does weird existential stuff or quite psychopolitical stuff. So he did things like Crash. This is kind of partway between the two. It's a very good, well-told story. Now, for any story that you have to to read between the lines and particularly look at the allegory for, then this is the one. It's difficult to know what to say about it because it was a very, very good piece. This one I enjoyed a lot. Well reviewed at the time. Yeah, um, and since the lead, well, essentially the lead character is played by uh, Donald Houston, who is Glyn Houston's older brother. <clears throat> he was never in Doctor Who, but I knew I'd, his face looked very familiar. So IMDb yeah. to the rescue. And it's David, David Calder in Moonbase Three, which I've not seen all of yet. Yeah, but he's one of the series regulars. He's the the new commander that turns up there. So the episode that we did, he he was front and center. That was nearly two years ago now, you know. Probably about time to release the episode then. So, and dear listeners, we have a number of episodes that are 
just wanted to, well, to put that in perspective, we now have enough material uh, to release up to about episode 80. And the latest release as of recording is episode 47. But the COVID isolation ones are going to leap to the, the forefront a bit. As we've said before, we don't really record as live, but we thought that this is uh, one occasion where we should actually acknowledge what's going on in the real world. In terms of, well, the the cast is full of people. There's um, Donald Houston, who puts in an excellent performance, but John Abinari, who I know best as Rimmer's dad in Red Dwarf, and he has cropped up in something else. But he um, plays the colonel who's overseeing the whole thing, the whole project. He's in quite a number of Doctor Who's. So, I mean, Ranquin in Power of Kroll, Van Lutyen's in Fury from the Deep, and Railton in Death of the Daleks. But... Um, I tend to remember him best as General Carrington in Ambassadors of Death. Which is one I'm not intimately familiar with. It was, I'm not uh, entirely sure why, because I've probably only seen Ambassadors of Death a couple of times, because I, I, th- I think it's a bit overblown and dull. The series regulars in Survivors playing Hugo Goss, uh, and again, that's quite topical at the moment. I, I did think of suggesting a Survivors episode to tie in with COVID, but I think that might be going a little too far. <laughs> bit too real no a bit too unreal because with that it's most of the population wiped out overnight and thankfully that's not the situation we've, we've got with covid so the the theme that we've gone with which is isolation groups of people who are stuck in their uh, their environment and can't get out which is the the three that we're talking about this evening that's much more in keeping with the, the current situation uh one last honorable member mention on the the cast list for robert james who I know is in Mask of Mandragora. Mask of Mandragora is also Lesterson in Power of the Daleks and Josiah Naismith in Century Falls. There's Noel Johnson, who was Thuse in The Underwater Menace and Charles Grover in Invasion of the Dinosaurs, but was also Osborne in Andromeda Breakthrough and A for Andromeda. There is Robert Russell, who was the caber in Terror of the Zygons. There's John Moore, who was a Trojan man in The Myth- Mythmakers. There's John Lyne, who was Martin the Colony in Space and played jo- the character John Ladiver in The Curse of the Daleks stage play in 1965. <laughs> he was also a regular Andrew Shaw in Emergency Ward 10. And finally, one of the children is played by Janet Fairhead, who was a child in the Tribe of Gum from 1963. And those are her only two acting credits. So it was this in the Tribe of Gum and that, that was her career. So well done, her. I think in terms of who alumni, that's up there with one of the best. Yeah. In terms of the actual episode itself, it had me from the start. Donald Houston plays a very sympathetic character. You you warm to him immediately. He's right in the middle of the situation. He He's torn between shutting the project down, which he knows in his heart of hearts is a failure, and doing it in such a way that you don't psychologically damage everybody that's left that's taking part in it. Knowing full well, there's not really any way of reintegrating these people that have been isolated the entirety of their lives back into society. You can tell from the people sat around the table, their gut instinct is just to pull the plug on the whole thing, cut their losses, were it not for the fact that the public are watching, a la The Truman Show or Big Brother or something like that. And right in the middle is Dr. Francis, who is trying to do the best for everybody and sending himself mental in the process, not helped by the fact that Abel, the boy on board who works it out, 
is trying to brainwash him. He turns the tables very quickly, I notice, the, the brainwashing. Dr. Francis goes along with it, but... Between some scenes, they tell you that, that six months has passed. Mm, so Yes, they do. Um, it's not a, this is happening overnight. The other interesting thing, which kind of ties into the comments we were making when we did Gridlock, is that it's a story about mental conditioning. And the first thing that you hear is a church hymn. The, the episode starts with the uh, the crew singing Onward Christian Soldiers. Yeah, that was something that jarred. Now, we've mentioned this before. Oh, no, well. in terms of mental conditioning, that works perfectly because that's kind of what the church has been for. No, that wasn't what I was, that was, wasn't what I was meaning. It was, it tied in with the story beautifully, but you brought it up in a previous podcast that religious symbolism and something outright as Christianity so heavily referenced directly is extremely rare nowadays on television. So he leapt out as something odd. It took me by surprise as it would have been perfectly normal at the time, probably, or, or nothing out of the ordinary, certainly. Uh, now it just surprised me to see something so outright religious. I mean, when would have been the last time we had something like that plot with sort of religious mind control? The vision, perhaps, or the tribe? I'm not sure which of those came first. The vision, the uh, the, uh, the uh, Lee Remick televangelist on from America moving over to the to the UK, um, or the the tribe, the Stephen Polyakov play. I, I think the vision probably came after the tribe because the the tribe was one of his earliest ones. So yeah, we should do we should do some Polyakov at some point. I mean, I prefer shooting the past to the tribe, but we could do either. It's very rare that you let me down with something that is absolutely appalling. So I'm quite happy to go with your suggestions. I don't think I've got a copy of The Tribe. I've certainly got Shooting the Past. Now, that's one that'll have to wait until quarantine's lifted. Segwaying again and coming back to 13 to Centaurus. It was a, a very, very well done piece of television. It's brilliantly acted. The sets for all of these look wonderful. I have to say the model, going back to Lambda One, the model work was not good. It was a little bit blue Peter, those, those ships. Yeah, like, it um, was. They they obviously spent all of their money on the on the dreamscapes and then got Valerie Singleton in to do their. Uh, <laughs> the their camera modeling. angle didn't help though. They had this very steep top down camera angle. If they'd have shot it a little bit lower down, or even it wouldn't have made any difference because it was a terrible looking little model. The only thing that could have helped with that is a heavy smoke machine. But that's a very minor niggle. There were what maybe three model shots. Uh, in, yeah, they're only the whole, a handful. Yeah, and it, it didn't look great, but I would far prefer them to have done what they did and spend the budget on the dreamscapes. Possibly they didn't need to go all the way to Morocco to film it. Well, that's, perhaps somebody wanted a holiday. <laughs> well, that was filmed in Morocco. The dusty bits were, yes. That I did not know. I mean, I, I got that information from an absolutely phenomenal book that uh, about Out of the Unknown that has been re- released quite a number of years ago now by Kaleidoscope. It's written by Mark Ward. It is the most incredible episode guide I have ever seen for any TV series, including Doctor Who episode guides. It is just stunningly good and detailed. Better Um, than Andrew Pixley? Really? I'm afraid so. Good grief. It wasn't cheap at the time it came out. It, I think it's fairly ruinously expensive now. <laughs> um, when quarantine drops, I will break my copy out of its secure environment and bring it along for you to have a look at. Moving on to the third and final of the episodes that we've watched for this session. It is the second episode from the first season. 
It was broadcast on the 11th of October 1965, uh, written by Alan Norse, uh, adapted by Philip Broadley and directed by George Spenton Foster, called The Counterfeit Man. Um, now this, I didn't deliberately save it till last, but I'm glad I did. This spooked the hell out of me. Horrible. Yeah. I don't watch this one very often because it is so unpleasant and creepy. I like the creepy episodes. I like some lapse of time um, and episodes like that. I like level seven, although level seven isn't particularly creepy. It's just out and out depressing. Um, This one, for all it looks shiny and science fiction, all all three of these are, are very shiny, uniformed, big, open, fantastic looking sets, actually. Classic type science fiction. This one is really, really creepy. So it's the story of a survey vessel, military survey vessel coming back from Ganymede, uh, one of the the moons of Saturn. Uh, Anyway, coming back from, uh, from deep space. And the whole crew is saying what an incredibly dull trip it's been. One of the crew has weird blood results uh, and has a, a blood glucose of zero, which is not compatible with life. And this gets flagged up to the, the medical officer who said, oh, well, that's not right. Before he can investigate much further, another member of the crew dies with a blood sugar of zero. So they, they start investigating that. And very, very quickly, this doctor becomes convinced that the original crew member with the, the blood sugar of zero is an alien who has come on board and replaced that member of the crew with a, a perfect duplicate. So um, this is where the counterfeit manner of the title comes in and sets about proving that this bloke is a counterfeit. And the way that he does that is... Not through any physical means, not through any blood tests or physical examination, because all of that is fine. He sets about breaking him psychologically and the the doctor manipulates it. So he gets bullied and harassed by his crewmates and friends. And because he doesn't turn to this gibbering wreck, although he looks very, very upset by it. And you, yeah. you see an entire night where he's just there squeezing this, this, this sponge until blood bleeds out of his hand. So he, he does look upset, but because he's not having nightmares, this is apparently proof, proof positive that he's an alien. So they trap him in an airlock and pump all the um, the air out. And he, he does turn into an alien. And it turns out the doctor is right all along. The ship lands on Earth. They, all the crew are taken off for quarantine. The doctor goes back on board to be greeted by a second alien who kills him, to, takes his place and walks out past security. I thought this was a, a really nasty episode because the whole thing about where you've got one blood result that hasn't worked out and then on on check it's actually fine rather than doing what we would normally do and saying well actually this person seems perfectly well and machines do sometimes go wrong Mm -hmm. orchestrates this whole campaign of hate against this poor fella um, and he's accused of stealing the money that has been collected for the the widow of the uh, the crewman who dies and so they set the entire crew against him he gets verbally abused physically abused his captain turn, turns against him and this is a young lad we were talking about uh, it's played by david hemmings wasn't it it um, was in one of his earliest roles yeah well he played and i found this again thank you imdb he was charles henry moffat who was the creator of Airwolf. That was made about, ooh, what, 15 years later? 
and he's virtually unrecognisable in that 15 years. But he was a real nasty sod in that. The Airwolf movie, I think, was rated 18 or something. It was that. It was quite unpleasant, the pilot episode. Yeah. But I digress. But he puts in a fantastic <laughs> yes, performance he does. Um, yes. as this poor lad. And you spent a lot of the episode not knowing whether he's an alien or not. Mm. The only way they find out is to stick him in an airlock, pump all the, the air out of the airlock. Now, if if he'd actually been human, they would have killed him at that point, all because of one random aberrant blood test. Now, on that note, the very thing that you suggested earlier, that mistakes happen rather than just going off one blood test, and the fact that two of them had had an impossible blood test... You would have thought that they would have rerun the tests just to make sure, or done. I don't know. Whether, it's not ever made clear whether they do a shipwide test. Um, no, but they they do say that they rerun rerun the blood test because his second blood test came back completely normal. Yes, they, ah, they do, they do, they do. It's an incredible leap of faith on the part of the captain to take this doctor's word and about incredible. this incredible story. That uh, what if they're lumps of goo that have just formed a a human-shaped crust, and that's how they... Incredibly, that turns out to be exactly what's happened. But it's a pure leap of imagination. Yeah, I, and I found the, the level of bullying that that poor young lad was, was put through really uncomfortable it to was, watch. And, yeah. Okay, it, in the context of the story, then it, it's quite clever and it's, oh, well, um, he's not human, therefore he doesn't dream like a human. But actually, in terms of watching an orchestrated campaign of bullying, which is what we were watching in the episode, that was really quite unpleasant. It, that was one of the most... Un- well, it was the, un- the unpleasant thing, because all the way through, you only really confirmed or start to believe that he really is an alien with this comforter that he keeps squeezing this this sort of stress ball thing made out of sponge that he keeps squeezing when he's in bed and they're trying to incite nightmares in, in his sleep. But some young fella, because he was supposed to be on his first tour, so he's not... a. Uh, a hardened space space veteran. He was he was on his first tour. Young lad, his commanding officer turns against him. His all of his peers, who he'd been friendly with up until that point, turn against him and treat him as a thief and a pariah. It wouldn't be unusual for somebody to have a stress reaction to that. And different people react to stress differently. And squeezing a worry ball may be the way that he reacted to his stress. No, it wasn't so much that. It was the fact that eventually he was squeezing the worry ball that slime and goo started to drip onto the floor from his Mm. hand. And that's the the first indication that actually he might be an alien. What is that? Is that something coming from the the sponge or is that is that coming out of his hand? Is he and so it's it's only at that point that the viewer starts to doubt that he he may actually be an alien and it's not as mad as it up to that point as, as sounded. Yeah, I would have just liked that that doctor to have a bit more reason behind his mm. thoughts. And actually, the way the way the plot is is kind of a precursor of the thing. John it Carpenter. is. Uh, it was a few years after the first version of the thing. Um, Although the thing is a remake of a nineteen fifties horror story. So uh, the th- I think it was called the thing that came from out of space in those days. Yeah, yeah, the space carrot. That title has so far eluded me. The most unpleasant bit of the whole thing was the airlock sequence. That was just... Bear in mind, this is 1962. Audiences, well, certainly on television, weren't used to that sort of thing. It was really unpleasant to watch this man eventually start to desiccate and then just dissolve into a, a sludgy puddle. It was really, really unpleasant to watch. 
Yeah, and at the time, space was only just starting to be explored. I mean, uh, Gagarin was, what, 59? But it, it was very, very recent. There had been manned space flight only within the last, uh, within the previous few years, and nothing other than a few orbits of the Earth and then back down again. It was, um, it was just a nightmare of it all. And I was trying to watch this through 1962 eyes. It would have been even more horrible than through 2020 eyes. By a long way. The special effects on the, on that were, were, I have got to take my hat off to them. They've clearly done it, as most television was done, with no money in those days, and yet they've made something that's worse than any Doctor Who. Yeah, but it was also intended for an adult audience. I think that is one of the most affecting episodes that, we, that we've seen. Mm. Not not quite there with Level 7, but easily as disturbing as The Machine Stops. Oh, yes. Um, um, I'd, no, I'd put that above The Machine Stops, if I'm honest. I just look at it and think, if I'd have seen that, say, let's say, I'm guessing sort of 9, 10 o'clock at night, that would have been post-Watershed, certainly. But watching that before you were going to go to bed and not being used to seeing anything on that scale on television, I can't imagine there were many programmes of with that level of horror in in early 1960s BBC. Uh, that would have been 65, oh, 65, which wouldn't have been terribly long before things like um, Big Breadwinner Hog and the... Um, that had its notorious um, acid-to-the-face scene. So there, there was some nasty stuff around, but certainly in, in terms of genre fiction, actually in terms of any fiction, that that was nasty. The airlock scene and all the, the psychological manipulation and bullying of what is ostensibly just a young lad before that is very unpleasant to watch. Not one I'm keen to rush back to, if I'm honest. It's not one I, I have rewatched for quite a number of years, Whereas things like The Machine Stops, like Lambda One, I really enjoy and will watch over over again. Actually, I, I'm not even sure I found Level 7 as disturbing as this. Level, level 7 is horrible in its own way, but I've watched Level 7 more often than I've, I've watched The Counterfeit Man. Yeah. Should we move on to the cast? Have we got any alumni in that? Well, well Bud Tingwell makes his second outing tonight as Captain Jaffa. It is. There is also... Peter Fraser, who played Donnie, who was David Campbell in The Dalek Invasion of Earth. There was David Saville playing Jerry, who was Carstairs in The War Games, Windsor in Claws of Axos, and Crichton in The Five Doctors. And there is Barry Ashton, who was France in The Moonbase, Kemp in Frontier in Space, Proctor in The Time Monster, a unit soldier in The Silurians, a scientist in Inferno, and Troughton's double in The Evil of the Daleks. Again, the wonders of IMDb. <laughs> It's, it's a very useful tool for podcasters. Just to wrap this up, Out of the Unknown is just one of those series I'm happy for us to keep coming back to because everything we watch is a self-contained story in itself. They're basically, we can dip in and out of these. There's material for as, oh, long, as, got, as long as we've got. Yeah, I mean, we, we've got at least, we haven't even touched the colour stuff yet. There is more wonderful stuff in the black and white. Some lapse of time is really disturbing, but a great story no place but like earth is a really nice little story it was the series opener it's not the greatest episode but it is just really nicely done there are a couple of asimov adaptations sucker bait and the dead past that are just wonderful wonderful stories and the dead past has such a creepy ending it's not true so there's loads more stuff that we can do on out of the unknown and it's definitely one to return to i've deliberately chosen episodes 
for this edition that are on the theme of isolation. So it's all about groups of people who are trapped away from their families or their planet or whatever. Usually, actually, in all of them, in effectively a little spaceship that they're trapped in with uh, a danger either stuck in with them or outside. It's classic base under siege with a twist. And one we'll be returning to in the future. Thank you very much for listening to us, boys and girls. Hope you've enjoyed what we've had to say. We can both recommend Out of the Unknown. They are out there. They're on Amazon Prime. Well worth your time to dip which in. Is, which is just as well, because the, the DVDs are fairly ruinously expensive now. I think they're sort of 40 quid a set or, or, or something like that. Ouch. So, And hopefully, Philip Morris will at some point do his magic and find us more episodes. It would be one absolutely wonderful if we could get one of the Out of the Unknown um, Asimov robot stories. But on that note, we shall sign off. Thanks for listening, boys and girls. We'll be back soon with another edition. Take care and stay safe in isolation. The Exton Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss, and the title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra. All featured television soundtracks are the property of their respective producers, and no infringement of copyright is intended. The programme was recorded in Rushton, Lancashire and produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit our website at extonmossexperiment.blogspot.com or find us on Facebook.